If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find 1 Thessalonians as we continue in this series, Living in the Light of Our Lord Jesus' Return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Today's message, Doors and Demons, Overcoming or Handling Satanic Oppression, and so much more as we live in this tension that we're living in right now in this world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're looking at the last paragraph in that passage, which actually begins and takes us into chapter 3, but we're only going to look at verses 17 through 20 this morning. Follow with me, if you will. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan, what? Say it. Hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of, re- or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. There's a lot there. I said a few weeks ago that the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians is not intensely doctrinal, but there is a huge doctrinal statement in this passage, and we will spend some time on it this morning. Years ago, as I was studying 1 Corinthians, I came to the very last chapter, and I was absolutely arrested by a a line that Paul said. He was in Ephesus when he wrote to the Corinthians, and he said, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus Because, watch this, a great and effective door has been opened to me. And then he says, and there are many adversaries. And just like that, two thoughts came into my mind. Where there's a door, there's a demon. And this, where there's opportunity, there's opposition. You can count on it every single time. And that speaks of tension. It speaks of great tension, and some of you are living under incredible anxiety, a lot of tension. And this passage doesn't envelop all of the tensions that we experience, but it does does deal with tensions that most followers of Christ experience in their lives. And I want to talk about those. Those those tensions are long-for affections that are unfulfilled. There is the tension of satanic disruption which is ongoing, and we're going to spend a a great deal of our message on that. And then finally, the tension of heavenly anticipations for which those who really know the Lord, and that is many of you, but not all of you, anticipate, and we wait for. So the the first tension I want to talk to you about from the passage here is long for affections. Again, look at Paul, it says, we were torn from you, brothers, For a short time, not in person, or that is, uh, in person, not in heart. And we endeavor the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. I want to do. I, Paul. This speaks of affection. He loved these people. We've talked about what a rock star church this was. They got saved. They're talking to people. People are getting saved. They're going out. The the entire empire is coming back to Paul saying, look what's going on in Thessalonica. But if, you were, uh, if you've been with us, you know, in this second chapter, Paul is using lots of metaphors. He, he, he refers to himself as a mother. 
He refers to himself as a father. And now, and now he refers to himself as an orphan. You say, where is that? It's in the word torn away. See that word there? That is, or torn out, it's translated in, this, in the ESV, torn away. Some Bibles say taken away. It is, it is the Greek word by which we get our English word orphaned. It's the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. And the tense is passive, which means something is acting, acting upon it. He didn't, do the, he didn't get taken away of his own volition. It, it speaks of a, a forced separation. And he's specifically going back to where we began in Acts chapter 17 when Paul arrives in Thessalonica, evangelizes the people over three weeks, souls are getting saved, the church is established, and he's harried out of town. He's run out of town. And that's what he's referring to here. He says, I, I feel orphaned from you. Those of you who have fostered children, and that's a number of you, and then there's also that segment of you who have fostered kids with the hopes of adopting them, only to have them torn away from you. Uh, you, 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 you thought you were, you were going through all, you jumped through all the hoops, and then, you know, the, the mom or the dad, the blood relatives said, nah, I want them back, and you... You, you know that devastation that the Apostle Paul is referring to. He, Paul is basically saying, I know how you feel. And he's, of course, talking about it spiritually. And I can tell you that many times in my own life, I have felt orphaned from individuals that I have evangelized. I've poured my life into. I've discipled them. I, only to have Satan snatch them away through a myriad of things such as sin in their own lives or fear or lies that they have bought into, or a false, some, false, some form of false teaching, or maybe they just had fake faith that isn't real, which might be some of you. you you've prayed prayers and all that, but there's never been any, any intrinsic change in your life, and so you've bought into something that isn't real. You bought into a false gospel. And when that happens, and those individuals that I've poured myself into I, are ripped away from me, it tears me up every time. Uh, one of our pastors in the Engage, Greater Engage Network talked to me just the other day. And he was, he was saying he had a, a, a situation just like this. Poured himself in this individual. I happen to know this individual as well. They were torn away. I won't get into the details as to why. And this brother was really hurting over it. And at the end of the day, I said, don't you ever, ever get to a place where you don't feel it when you lose somebody you love. Because you don't belong in the ministry if you don't feel it. And Paul is, is talking personally about this. We've all had people torn away from us. If you haven't, you will. Through death, separation, divorce, bereavement. It could be family, a family member. Some of you are still grieving over your, you know, grandparent perhaps. I mean, somebody you long to sit with again. This is what Paul is talking about. I, Paul. Look, look what he says. I, Paul. Now, if you've been with us, you know that Paul is not, he is the author of this letter, but he, he starts the letter off in chapter 1 and verse 1 by saying, it's me, and I got Silas, and I got Titus with me. So there's three of them. But Paul is sort of pushing them out right now because he wants to personally say, you are really on my heart right now. When I write pastoral letters or emails, we endeavor to use the pronoun we because we want you to know it's from the elders and not just from me. But every once in a while, I just can't help it. i got to put that I in there. 
because it's me talking to you now. That's what Paul's doing here. If there's somebody on your mind right now that you miss, that you love, have loved, and still love, they're gone for whatever reason. They've been torn away from you and not by your choice. And I know that applies to several of you. In fact, I talked to a friend just the other day who's grieving over a loss, somebody taken away from them. And I know it happens. My charge to you this morning would be to ask you the question, would you believe that God is big enough and that his plan is great enough that he has deemed it necessary for you to be right where you're at right now with, these, with this tension of longing for this person or persons not in your life. God is bigger than that, and he can take care of you. But he understands you. David said, David even said to God in, in, the, in the 38th Psalm, he said, my sighing is not hidden from you. Have you ever read that? So, the first tension is this longed-for affections unfulfilled. The second one is, and we're going to spend some time here, satanic disruptions. Now look at it. It's, it's in verse 18. Paul's, I wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Why does Paul invoke Satan? I mean, if he had said, I wanted to come to you over and over again, but I just couldn't work it out. Or something came up. That's, you, that's what you and I would say, right? Something came up, something got disrupted. You don't just invoke Satan. But Paul does. We're familiar with that name, Satan. But you might not be familiar with Satan. Satan has a, the word, the name, the noun is a, um, is a um, is, has Hebrew origin. It means to be, it means accuser. It means adversary. Everything and every designation of the devil is dark. In chapter 3 and verse 5, he's called the tempter. He's called the devil. He's called Belial, or the worthless one. That's what that means. He's called the serpent in Revelation 12, and he's called, he's called the evil one. We, we don't have the time to to just unpack a whole theology of demonology and Satan. But best we know, he was Lucifer. You can read Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. And you discover from those passages this personage, this demon, this angelic being, who is, Ezekiel calls him the anointed cherub that covereth, or that covers. So many theologians believe that he was some kind of an arch, archangel. Super high up angel, very close to the throne. Somehow, someway, during this probationary period that God had, that the, he, he and took a third of the angels with them that would become demons and cast them out. And it's a dramatic passage of scripture. You can read it for yourself. This is, this is where Isaiah says, where he, this Lucifer said, I will ascend to the mountain. I will be like the most high God. You don't do that. And God put him down with a third of the, the angels that would become demons. And we know that he, this happened before the Garden of Eden because he's there doing his dastardly work with Eve and Adam. Jesus called him a murderer. 
a liar, and the father of lies. So every lie you tell, the word father in the Bible means originator. So you know that every time you tell a lie, you know where its origin came from. Think about that. We know from Ephesians 6 that he is over an incredibly diabolical yet organized system that's against us. That's the passage, take up the whole armor of God, for we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against a spiritual host of wickedness and heavenly places. So take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the tricks of the devil. In fact, he's, this, this system includes nations. I mean, this is going to be the only political statement I'm going to make because I know we're, you know, the vote's coming on this Tuesday. And you're full of anxiety there too. I know you are because you tell me. Did you know that there is, there is a passage in the Bible? Mark it down and read it for yourself. It's really intriguing. It's where God just pulls back that curtain. There's a few of those passages where God pulls that curtain back and lets us see what's happening in the invisible realm. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is praying. He's looking for help from God. Suddenly, Michael, the archangel, the, you know, Michael and Gabriel, they're like way up there. Michael shows up. It's almost like, I'm here, I'm here. I mean, Daniel, listen, I, I, God heard you when you started praying, but I've been at it for three weeks with the prince of Persia, whoever that is, and he has been in pitch battle, Michael the arch archangel, with this prince over Persia. And I think that is probably some higher up arch demon of, of some type over the nation at that time of Persia. And there surely is one over us. But back to our text. Satan hindered. He hindered us. The word hindered is a strong word. It means to cut in. It conveys the idea of breaking up a road by putting obstacles so you can't get to where you're going. And that's why I want to take a little time to talk about four satanic obstacles from this book. Now, this isn't replete. This isn't exhaustive. There are others. Don't come to me after. Oh, I thought of 14 other ones. Don't bring them to me, okay? Just take these four for right now, okay? The first one is detachment. Detachment, which is what the word hindered means. It means to break up. It means to separate. It means to cut off. Armies then and armies now know that one of the keys to victory is to cut off the enemy's supply lines. Right, soldiers? Right? Cut them off so that you can't feed the troops with armaments or food, for that matter. This is how... This is how nations battled with nations back in the day. This basically was a war of attrition to win. Now, the COVID-19 crisis has certainly done that to the church, particularly. Because the one another's, of which there are many in the New Testament, the one another's love one another, comfort one another, exhort one another daily, and on and on. The one another's of scriptures are the, listen to this, the one another's of scripture are the, are you writing this down? The one another's of scripture are the lifelines of body life in the church. You got to have them. 
And he has cleverly cut those off through fear and through tension. Satan has been behind this, this pandemic for sure. But he's also been behind, wait for it, he's also been behind the hysteria on all sides. So half a year guilty right there. I think that more than a few of us are going to have to look back on this time with real and necessary embarrassment for the way we responded. But Satan is working beyond the virus and the extreme attitudes. He's convinced some, I think just a slice, because those who are watching online, you have legit reasons. We're talking to you by phone. We're visiting you when we, when we can. We understand you that are elderly. We understand you that are sickly. We understand you, you that have fears for one reason or another. You have a legitimate reason for staying back. But there are some, a slice, perhaps, that have been convinced by the devil, hey, this isn't so bad. I can get used to this. Just tune in, watch it online. Cool. He's convinced you. You would never come out and say it, but he may have convinced you. You don't need the power. You don't need the encouragement. You don't need the edification of body life. But you do. You desperately need it because God did not create us to be independent. He created us to be interdependent with one another. I'm reminded of an old man by the name of George. He was a dear friend. He's been with the Lord for years. Years ago, he uh, he told me the story, it could have been him, knowing him, it might have been him, but he told the story of another old dude like him that was a godly guy in the church, and there was a young guy, this young upstart, he was convinced he didn't need the fellowship, he didn't need, the, he didn't need church life, he didn't need body life, he didn't need the one another because he was a lone shark, he'd get out there, get evangelized the world, he didn't need to be a part of the church. Didn't need to serve, didn't need to be hooked up to the local church. And the pastor was so frustrated with this guy, he just sent him to the old dude. It was the middle of the winter, and they sat by a fireplace. And the young upstart was just, just, you know, just you know, waxing eloquent about how he was going to be able to do this and do great things for God. He didn't need the church, yada, yada, yada. And the old dude just sitting there listening. And right there was this roaring fire with all of these hundreds of bright red coals going as the old guy just sat there and never said a word. And while that guy's talking, he reached in, the old guy reached in with the tongs, pulled out a glowing red coal, and just put it on the hearth. And within about five seconds, it just went from bright red to dark. And the young guy looks at him and he goes, I'll see you on Sunday. <laughs> Detachment. Here's another obstacle, detours. And this is a little more subtle, because remember, we're told not to be unaware of his, his tricks. If you run into a detour, you're forced to go a different direction, right? You veer, you take the, the, you take the long road, take the side road. It usually, takes a, it's, it usually means a longer trip. And if you don't follow the signs, you're going to end up going the wrong way. I couldn't help but think of a, a son of mine years ago. I won't say which one. Praise the Lord when you have a big family. You, can't, you don't have to identify every one of them. Calls up one day and says, hey, which way to Ames? I said, no problem. Just get on Interstate 35, go north. It's about a half hour away. Got it. He calls about an hour later. He says, Dad, where is Ames? And I said, well, where are you now? He goes, I just drove by Newton. 
I said, you're on 80 going east. You got to come back. He wasn't real happy about that. Yeah, he's the only one who went the wrong direction, right, guys? At any rate, that's, it's one thing to go the wrong direction physically. But spiritually, this is, Satan is a master at getting us off on detours. The Thessalonians were an amazing church, and yet they lacked knowledge. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, Brethren, I would not have you ignorant or uninformed. Which, in other words, they, act, they were Now listen carefully. One of Satan's greatest detours is to get us to be content with a weak view of God. One of his greatest detours, and he is a master at this in our generation. I mean, we we get Bibles all over the place, and we are the most ignorant people on earth, it seems like. One of his greatest detours is to get us to be content with a weak view of God. Remember, this is, this is the same devil that had the audacity to misquote Scripture to Jesus like he was going to trip him up. Just the other day, and by the way, we have confronted a couple of, we are convinced, genuinely satanic situations in the church just in the last week. That's what I'm, I, I'm convinced this stuff is going to ramp up before it ramps down. We are living in the light of his return, right? We con- I confronted a woman who was up to no good. And I, you know, I, I, I gave her what I thought was a legitimate, stern, but you know, respectful word. And her brazen reply to me was, Jesus doesn't defame. He puts his loving arms around his sheep. And so I responded, You better read all of Jesus' words. He also talked about wolves in sheep's clothing. I think she's been listening to Joel Osteen's Inspiration Cube. (laughs) Look, we need more Jesus and less Joel. Amen? If we're to avoid those satanic detours, then we must get on God's map. His word. We talked about it all last week. Listen to that sermon. Not just yet. Here's the third one. Discouragement. If Satan can discourage you, he can stop you in your tracks, and he has won a victory, albeit temporary. You see verse 19, Paul says, I wanted to come to you, and look what he adds. See what he adds there? What? Again and what? Again and again. Which means... He's being exasperated. Discouragement. The word, our word discouragement literally means to take courage out. When you discourage somebody with a word, you are gutting them of their spirit. If you're a murmurer, if you're a complainer, and if you have pejorative terms for your husband or your wife, shame on you. You are gutting them of courage. To be discouraged means to have courage taken out of you. And nobody's better at it than the devil. Paul says it was a, he says in verse 17, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, he's a realist, but it doesn't ever seem like a short time to us, does it? When we get discouraged, and yet 
This is how Peter put it. Peter said, look, I know that you long for him. And he was telling his persecuted readers, he says, though now for a little while, if need be, you, are, you have to endure many trials. But listen to how he, though now for a little while, little while, short time, if need be. I've always said that trials, no matter what they are, that, and they do lead to discouragement in time, but trials are, they're now, okay? So that's presently, for a little while, that's temporarily, if need be, that's necessarily. So there's never, a tri- don't ever waste a trial in your life. There isn't such a thing, if you understand what God is doing, even though it may lead to discouragement. And I get it. I mean, David got it. He was going through one of the most stressful times in his life. And you remember what he said, how long, oh Lord? This is somebody who's discouraged, right? Trials plus time without answers leads to discouragement. That's why you have to stay close to God and get that perspective of God. Warren Wiersbe gave great encouragement. He said, in times of trouble and testing, it's important we take the long view of things. Too many of you are getting tripped up in the short view. You've got to have a long view. Discouragement, and finally, doubt. I saved this for the end because this is the most important one of all, and this is what he's best at. He's best at this. He's better at this than any of the above and any others, the 14 things you thought of otherwise. Doubt. This is the very first obstacle in the Bible referring to the devil. You knew that, right? Revelation, I'm sorry, let's go to the other side of the Bible. How about Genesis? Jeez. Now I'm biblically dyslexic. Genesis 3, where he's, he cast that doubt to Eve. So these are, here, this is, I call this the law of first reference. When something big happens in the Bible for the first time, it has ramifications everywhere else. And the law of first reference, when Satan caused Eve to doubt, tells me that doubt might be his greatest weapon against you and me. Ask anyone who slides into depression. Ask anybody. Where do they go? They all go to doubt. They all struggle with that question that he laid upon Eve. Did God actually say? So in chapter 4, verse 13, again, remember, that's where, that's where he says, I'm just going to quickly read it to you. He says, but we, want you to, we don't want you to be uninformed. There's ignorance, brothers, about those who are asleep. That's the Christians who had died before them. They, they, they don't know what happened to them. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The point is they were grieving. They thought that they were a part of the company of no hope. And Paul said, not true, not true. You're you're uninformed and you're filled with doubt. You've you've let the evil one get to you. Just last night, my wife and I comforted a brother in Christ who was grieving over someone, over a death in the family. And the death actually occurred quite a while ago. But because he has gotten so enamored with it, he has begun to to doubt and question God and what he's doing. 
And that's what happens when we get worn down, doesn't it? And so it was our job to pump him up, to not discourage him, but encourage. Because encourage is the opposite of discourage. To encourage literally means put courage into. So that he wouldn't doubt. These are the tensions. By the way, Spurgeon Spurgeon said, uh, he said, uh, God is too loving to be unkind. He's too wise to be mistaken. And when I cannot see his hand, I can always trust his heart. And that's where we need to be. Trusting the heart of God whose heart is for you. So these tensions are these long-for affections that are unfulfilled and satanic disruptions which are ongoing. And finally, the tension of heavenly anticipation. Are you looking forward to heaven? Well, don't be, you know, so earthly-minded. You're, you know, so heavenly-minded, rather, you know earthly good. Of course, some of you are so earthly-minded, you know heavenly good, but we won't go there right now. I want you to look at these really cool verses that he wraps up with again. He, he's just said that Satan has hindered us. Now, I'm expecting him to say, lay it on us, Paul. How is he hindering you? But instead, he, look what he says in verse 19. But what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Isn't it you? You are our glory and joy. Paul doesn't look back with regret. He looks forward with joy. That's where we need to get when we are experiencing these tensions. Paul can't wait to present to Jesus at his coming. Indeed, he sees, he can't wait to present the Thessalonians that have come to Christ under his ministry to Jesus. He he sees them as a crown. Did you see that? He sees them as a crown. I mean, the crowns were big deals. In Bible times, the crown, the word crown here is not the word diadem, where you know, that's, you know, that star diamond studded, emerald studded crown that you think of when you think of a king. It's the word stephanos. We get our word Stephen from this word. It was really a wreath. It was, it was a perishable wreath, but you, you, you know, you've seen it. Those, you put them on the, on the champion, the Isthmian games that took place in Greece. They were the Olympics of those times. And if you won, if you won the Ithmian Games, you would be tax-exempt for life. Hallelujah! I don't think either one of these presidential candidates or the other ones you might vote for would offer that. And if you won a couple of them, you could have a statue put up in the Temple of Zeus. You were lionized. You were, you were hero status. You were worshipped. And Paul says, when I stand before Jesus, you are my crown. Remember, Paul said, those people that run in the games, they, they, they run after a perishable crown, but we after a what? Say it. An imperishable, one that never perishes. You talk about incentive. This speaks of incentive, doesn't it? Of treasures laid up where? Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupts, thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust can corrupt. Thieves can't break in and steal them. Can't get your stuff. I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, you're, 
You better be careful, Pastor, because you're talking about, you know, seeking the gift, not the giver. Get out of town. I'm not talking about that at all. I had somebody actually write me years ago, well, you, you can't get us, you shouldn't be telling us to pursue the, the, you know, the, the rewards of heaven. I mean, that takes, that takes away from Jesus. I said, what are you talking about? It doesn't take away from Jesus. It glorifies Jesus, who is the giver. That, that expression, seek the giver, not the gift, that has never set right with me because it's, 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 too, it's, it's lofty, but what in the world? Jesus told us to to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. He told us to lay up treasures in heaven. And Paul's saying here, I can't wait to present you as a crown. Here's how John Calvin put it. In despising the gifts, we insult the giver. Oh, that's good stuff. In despising the gifts... We insult the giver. When I surprise my wife with a gift that I know that she'll love, does she say then when she, she opens up, I love this? Yes, she actually does. But not more than the one who gave it to her for crying out loud. She just loves me all the more. That's the idea here. I think Randy Elkhorn put it best. Seek the giver through the gift. How's that? Last night, as I was just polishing off some of the rough edges of this, I, see, I saw an email pop up, and I saw it was from a, uh, a young man named Petey. I hadn't heard from him for years. And I just smiled. I thought, oh, I can't wait to read this. But I'll wait till tomorrow. It'll be fun to read it tomorrow. Then I thought, nah, I'll read it now. So I read it. And at the risk of sounding like a shameless plug, hang with me on this. This is what I read from this young man. He was in our youth ministry. He was brilliant, went off the rails like a lot of young kids do, got right with God, began serving the Lord. We touched base several years ago. He was tracking in the right direction. And now he's become wildly influential. I didn't even know this. Here's what he wrote to me out of the blue late last night. Hey, I was just watching your recent sermon series. Hey, thanks for watching, Pete, by the way, Petey. Uh, he said, Paul's gratitude to God for the Philippian church comes to my mind when I think of you. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You've been a blessing to me. In a couple weeks, it'll be my 19th spiritual birthday. Your labor of love in my life all those many years ago is reaping an eternal harvest today. Our Heavenly Father has greatly blessed us with several businesses, and it's our great privilege to come alongside many ministries today to labor for the kingdom. One of my favorite things to write anytime we get to do this with another business is something George Mueller wrote when he gave. Mueller always wrote this when he gave something. And here's the quote. He referred to himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus who, compelled by the love of Christ, seeks to lay up treasure in heaven. Petey goes on to write, I want to encourage you that you are a beneficiary Anything we lay up in eternity for your faithful sowing in my life. I about start crying. He says, I pray. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, flowing over you, your family and your ministry. What is he doing? He's seeking treasure by seeking the giver through the gifts that have been given to him. 
And it's all for the glory of God, right? So, we have heavenly anticipations. We should. In the meantime, why don't we bring some stuff with us, huh? Like people who need to know Jesus, that we can present to Jesus for his glory. And by the way, about all those tensions, in heaven, those tensions, those longed-for affections will be forever fulfilled, right? Those ongoing satanic disruptions will be forever vanquished, amen? Ever. And those heavenly anticipations, all of them, will be forever experienced. Sola de gloria. To God be the glory. By the way, are you going there? I'd love to take you with me. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? I didn't ask you if you're religious or that you prayed some prayer when you're, you know, three years old and you didn't mean it. Or maybe you meant it, but you didn't understand it. Or maybe you were eight or 10 or 15 or 20 or 30. I don't know how old you were when you laid claim to Jesus Christ. But when Jesus saves, Jesus changes. Inside out. Doesn't mean we don't struggle. Doesn't mean we don't have tension. Doesn't mean we don't fail. Doesn't mean we don't sin. But if you know Jesus, you don't run from God. You run to him when you fail. Have you had a time in your life when you repented of your sin and placed your faith in the one who died for you and rose again? He is indeed our ultimate treasure and yours. And you can have him by faith today. So as we prepare for the Lord's table, let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for the tensions of life that you have supernaturally allowed into our lives. And yes, Lord, you will even allow the demonic world to do its evil bidding, not to tempt us, but to test us that we might come forth as gold. We long for some of us who have been ripped away from those we love, affections unfulfilled. We struggle, even though we're more than conquerors through you who loved us with these ongoing satanic disruptions in our lives and forgive us for doubt and the distractions and going the wrong way. God, we're sorry. Reset us for your glory because we look forward to the time when this, the devil and all of his emissaries are vanquished forever. And God, we do look forward to those anticipations of joy and fellowship renewed in heaven and ultimately with our ultimate treasure, you. And I pray for your comfort in these days to all here and listening online. In Jesus' name, amen.